Hey, if you've got your Bible, open up to 2 Peter chapter 1. Before we jump in, we're going to look at verses 16 through 21. But before we do, I have to kind of remind you uh, where we've come from in, the, in chapter 1 so far. Uh, we've learned a lot of good things, a lot of good promises. Peter is... Uh, He's really kind of packing a lot of information for us. In verse 2, he told us grace and peace can be multiplied or increased to us as we grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we all need grace. We all need peace, especially this time of year. We need a little bit extra, all of that stuff. Uh, And the way that we do that, Peter's told us, it's by growing in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't come from uh, meditating. It doesn't come from, you know, relaxing. It doesn't come from a vacation. You ever taken a vacation and realize it's not very peaceful sometimes? You need to, when you get home, you need a vacation from your vacation. It comes from the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Peter's telling us. In verse 3, he told us the Lord's divine power has given us all things, all things, he said, that pertain to life and godliness. And this comes through the knowledge of Jesus. You know, Peter's really kind of laying it on. I hope you're getting the, the implication here. You need to get to know the Lord. The things that you're looking for in life are going to be found as you get to know him. Then in verse 4, I particularly like this when he said, hey, we've also been given exceedingly, and he called them great and precious promises. Great and precious promises in the word of God. And through these promises, he, he told us that we can be partakers of God's divine nature. He said, you can be a partaker of God's divine nature through these promises of God. And he also said, you can escape the corruption in the world, which comes through lust. Do we know and believe there's corruption in the world? Hopefully, you've under, hopefully you don't have to look very far to see that the world is a corrupted place. He said, you as a believer in Jesus Christ can escape that corruption. It comes through lust, he said, but you can escape that through these promises that God has given us. In verses 5 through 8, Peter began to lay out uh, man's responsibility. The idea that, yes, God has done great things for us, but there is a responsibility that man has. Not for salvation. Salvation comes by faith in Jesus Christ alone. But once you have faith, Peter's going to say, hey, there's some things that you need to add to your faith. There's some areas that you need to grow in. There's some things that I want to do. You see, sometimes as a believer, I'll hear stories where people say, well, I want God to change something in me. I want God to do something in me. And I will tell them, he's given you all that you need to change it in you. He's provided all the resources, everything that you need to change is available to you. And Peter laid it out there beautifully in verses 5 through 8. He said that we need to add some things to our faith. He said, first thing you add to your faith is virtue, moral excellence. Moral excellence, begin living your life in a morally excellent way. To our virtue, knowledge, we need to get to know the Lord Jesus Christ. To our knowledge, we need to add self-control. That's a big one, self-control. Just in case you weren't here last week, The definition of self-control, it's the restraint of your emotions, impulses, or desires. Are your emotions, impulses, or desires, are they under your control, or are they the very things that are controlling you? Self-control. And he said to add to self-control, perseverance. It's not just a one-time thing. You persevere in it. You continue in it. And to perseverance, we add godliness. Godliness, we add brotherly kindness. And to that, we add love. And he told us we don't just get to pick and choose. I want to work on that one, but I don't really like those three, so I'm going to disregard them. No, this is not a process. You don't start with faith, then add virtue. As you have faith, you begin adding all of these things at the same time. And I shared with you last week, Lord, where do you want me to work? Where do you want me to focus? And as he begins to focus you in for your life, because I can't tell you where, but if you say to Lord, show me what in my life needs to be changed. 
What's wrong? Is, where am I, is my thinking right? Does it line up with your word? What can I do? Where, where do you want to work in my life? He will begin to point you in one of those directions. You may be sitting here this morning and you might be going, well, self-control is the place I need to work. Well, if that's the place that you need to work, God will come alongside of you, he will empower you, and he will give it to you. But you have to put forth that effort, and when you do, all the other things are going to be growing at the same time. It all works together. It's not a a one and done. It's not just one thing. It's all of them. They're all working together. And Peter says, if you have these things, if you're focusing on them, if you're working in that direction, we will not be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Peter also said, some people don't have these things. Some people go, you know what? I've got faith, but I don't want to do any of that other stuff. Here's what he says. He says, those who lack these things are short-sighted even to blindness, and you have forgotten that you were cleansed from your old sins. If you're not interested in that list that Peter laid out in verse 5 through 8, Peter says you're short-sighted. You really don't understand your salvation. You somehow have forgot that your sins have been forgiven. You've forgotten what Christ has done for you on the cross. But he says if you pursue these things, if you'll pursue faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love, you'll do those things Peter promises or shall I say the Lord promises two things will happen he says number one you will never stumble you'll never stumble I bet every time you've stumbled in your Christian walk you are not pursuing the things that Peter would list out for us in verse 8 verses 5 through 8 you're probably pursuing something other than those things something of your flesh but he also said something interesting he said the second thing that will happen to you if you pursue these things He said, you will be supplied with an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you realize the impact on that? What he's saying there, he says, if you pursue these things, if you will spend your earthly life pursuing a godly life, a life for Christ, you will be provided with an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom. What will that look like, Rob? The implication is there'll be a party happening when you get there. They're looking forward to your arrival. There's something happening. It's going to be an abundant entrance. I can't tell you exactly what it would look like, but it's going to be abundant. There should be a desire in the believer's heart that says, I can't wait to get to my final destination to be with the Lord forever. Life on this earth, it's short, isn't it? Sometimes it's shorter than others. Sometimes it's very, very short. But as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ, we know that this is not it. That the end doesn't come when someone breathes their last breath. They move on into eternity to be with the Lord. What a blessing. What a hope that is. Wouldn't it be quite a letdown if this is all there was? That's it. Goodbye. That's it. No more left. That's it. We, we, We endure what we endure here so that we can be with him in eternity. Then in verses 12 through 15, Peter told his readers, he said, hey guys, This stuff is so important, I'm going to remind you over and over and over again. I already already know you guys understand this. I already under, you, you got it. But I want to keep telling you, I'm going to keep telling you over and over. I know you're established, but even after I die, even after I'm gone, I'll be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things. He kept to his word. We're being reminded of those very things this morning. In his letter, it's been preserved for us. Now, This morning, Peter's going to continue this thought process. As we come to verses 16 through 21, Peter's going to to remind us, or maybe he's going to instruct us 
in where he got the information that he had just taught us previously. Do you remember when you were in high school or perhaps you went to college and you began to take an English class or a writing class and you, and you, had to, and you would gather information from different sources and you would write a paper and you had to do something at the end of that paper. Do you know what it was called? A bibliography or a works cited page. You had to cite your information. You had to say, hey, this is, this is where I got that information from. This morning in these verses, that's what Peter's going to do. He's going to cite his information. He's going to tell us where he got these wonderful things that he told us over the last two weeks in our study. Oh, there's not going to be a list of sources. He's not going to quote the Apostle Paul. There'll be no authors. He won't mention James. Peter will tell you his source is Jesus Christ. His, his information is coming from the Almighty and the Heavenly Father. That's where he got his information from, and he's going to explain it to you, and then he's going to tell us, and it's backed up with the prophetic word of God. So his bibliography would look something like this. Peter is getting all his information from his time with Jesus Christ, and he's confirming what the prophets of God wrote of old about the Messiah. Something like that. He's going to say, I've already lived it, I've witnessed it, and it is confirmed. So pick up with me in chapter 1, verse 16. Just follow along. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is declaring here in his testimony about Jesus, he says, it was not a cunningly devised fable. And what I'm telling you is not cunningly devised fables. And that word or those words, that word phrase there, he's telling you, I'm not making up some Greek myth. I'm not telling you about the gods the Greeks worship. This is not some Jewish embellishment. This is not some production of man. Those words cunningly devised, it means to conceive, to imagine, to think up, to invent, but to do it ingeniously. Like you're brilliant. It's an amazing plan. Uh, it's a brilliant plan that has great thought has gone into. Peter's saying that's not it. I'm not telling you some great plan, some great thought that mankind has come up with. It's not some plan. It's not some fable. And then he reminds them, this is what I taught you. When I came to you, when I ministered to you, this is what I brought you. I, wanted, I made something known to you, he said. Peter, what'd you make known? Tell us, Peter, what'd you make known? He said, I made known to you the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I made known to you the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I made you know the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Power, the coming. I'm telling you about the Lord when he was here. I'm telling you about the power that he displayed. And that Greek word for power, it means, the Greek word is dunamis. It's where we get our English word for dynamite. It's an explosive power. It's a, it's a, it's a, it can't be contained. It's the power the disciples received in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit came upon them. Here in 2 Peter, or chapter 1, some people believe Peter's talking about Christ's return to earth. But he's not. He's speaking of Christ's presence on earth when he was here he was in power and some people would say no no he wasn't in power he was a humble servant he was but do you realize the power that was displayed while Christ walked on the earth was absolutely incredible 
You say, well, when, when did he display this power? How does, it, it, how does it happen? Consider with me the power over nature that was displayed to calm the wind, to calm the waves, to walk on water. Try it sometime. See how it goes. I'm always, I always think it's funny. Every time we go to Israel, and we've been there twice, and we're going again in a little over a year, we'll be going back there again. Uh, but you get on a boat, and you go out on the Sea of Galilee, and they always tell the stories. Almost every year, somebody steps off of the boat and tries to walk on the water. Nobody's ever done it. Some have died. Many have died. Many guys that couldn't swim. I'm going to do it. And it's some, some crazy step of faith. They walk, bloop, right to the bottom. Every year it happens, over and over again, because someone thinks that they can do it. Christ did it. He walked on water. No problem at all. Peter, he let Peter walk on water until Peter didn't have enough faith, until Peter took his eyes off the Lord. He displayed his power over nature. What about his power over sickness and disease? How many people did Christ heal? Sickness and disease on the earth. And people always wonder, why didn't he heal me? Or how come he, didn't, how come he healed those people and he didn't heal me? I don't have an answer to that question. Why he heals and some and why he heals others. Sometimes he uses modern medicine. Sometimes people aren't healed. I don't know. All I know is that the sickness and disease comes from sin in this world. And Christ demonstrated his power over sickness and disease. Which means that someday when we're him, with him face to face, there will be no more sickness and disease. And that's a blessing. That's a blessing. He demonstrated the power over his flesh. 40 days in the desert. He demonstrated the power over demons, didn't he? He cast every single one of them out. The power over death. Ultimately, the power over sin. And he did all of this while being compassionate and loving mankind. All of it. Yet mankind rejected somebody like this. Mankind crucified him. Jesus, God in the flesh, was here. He demonstrated his power and he did it in our presence. What did Peter say? He said, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He said, I'm telling you what I saw. We were spectators of his majesty. We walked with him for three years. We saw all that he did. I'm writing it down so you have information. I am not referring to another source. This is a firsthand account. We have seen the visible, his visible splendor. We've seen his divine majesty, and it's been with our own eyes. When, Peter? When, Peter, when did you see his visible splendor and his divine majesty? Give us, give, us, give us an instance in particular. Peter had witnessed it on many occasions. But I think as Peter's writing this letter, there's one thing standing out in his mind. Where is he thinking about? What's he thinking about? He's thinking about the Mount of Transfiguration. He's thinking about when Jesus was transformed. Look at verse 17. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. What are you talking about, Peter? I'm talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter witnessed Jesus' transformation into glory before his very eyes. He wasn't just merely changed on an outward appearance, but completely transformed. Can you imagine what that would look like? What that would look like? Jesus became so bright in appearance, he was hard to look at. Matthew told us he shone or shined like the sun. What would that be like? Can you imagine what that would look like? Go outside and look at the sun. No, don't do that. Don't say, the pastor told me to go outside, now my eyes hurt. <laughs> don't look at it, but you can imagine. You, wouldn't, you can't even do it. You have to look away. That's, that's what's exactly what happens. And you know what the amazing thing is? Jesus is walking with the disciples. 
day after day. He's walking with them, hanging out, you know, eating, enjoying life with them, teaching them, instructing them, healing, casting out demons, all this kind of stuff. They go up on top of a mountain, and all of a sudden they see his glory. Whoa! And they think, what a miracle! Perhaps the greater miracle is that he didn't look like that all the time. I mean, think about it. Who he was. God in the flesh. You'd think he walked around all day long looking like that. You'd think there'd be like this little ball of light walking through the Galilee region. You know? I mean, that's what you would think. But that, it was all concealed. All man. Fully man and fully God. You know, I know and I believe there's a day when we won't coming when we won't need the sun anymore. Because his light is going to shine. Jesus will be the light that illuminates Listen to what Revelation chapter 21, verse 23 says. And he's talking about the new Jerusalem, way off in the distance. Maybe not so far off, but off in the distance nonetheless. Here's what it says about the new Jerusalem. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is the light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. What what would happen to our world if the sun were to go out? You say, well, it'd get dark. It'd get cold. It'd be a tough place to live. Matter of fact, you wouldn't live very long. Yet there's coming a day where he's going to be the light. And you'll get to look at the sun every day. No cloudy days as the light walks in your midst. At the transfiguration, the father spoke from heaven. And in doing so, he declared his approval and his joy in Jesus. But if you remember the story, he also rebuked Peter, didn't he? Remember what happened? Peter says, hey, it's good we're here. Let's build tabernacles for everybody. Let's build one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you, Jesus. And the voice from heaven came out. What did did he say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. You know what God did? God went, shh, to Peter. Don't you hate it when someone shushes you? Don't shh. No, I want to talk. No. God, when God shushes you, it's time to stop talking. Peter got shushed. Shh. I don't want to. Peter, this is not your time. Take, put your foot back in your mouth. Leave it there so you just stop talking. This is my time. I'm going to speak here. I wonder how many times I've been praying, seeking God, and he's like, and I just, he just needs to go, shh. Now listen. Open your Bible. Just listen for a minute. Let me, let me show you something. Let me teach you. Let me, no, no, God, I'm not done talking. Yes, you are done talking. Just listen for a moment. So Peter's getting rebuked there as well. And then here he is. I wonder how long this was later. Several years later, he's writing this letter of 2 Peter, and he's remembering, as he's teaching on the power of God, his mind goes back to the Mount of Transfiguration, and he's remembering. And as he writes it, he's not telling us about Moses and Elijah. He's not telling us what they look like. He's not telling us uh, too much at all. What Peter's, he didn't, Peter doesn't even mention what Jesus looked like here. It was Matthew that tells us that. What does Peter tell us? He says, this is where we were, and this is what God said. God's word. I'm going to tell you what God said. God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The voice of God declared who Jesus was. God's voice established Jesus above the law and above the prophets. You see, the law is represented by Moses. He was present. The prophets, that's represented by Elijah. They weren't there to worship them. They were there to see God's son. They were there to see Jesus in all of his glory and all of his power. So Peter wants you to know something. 
He says, what I just taught you in the previous verses in chapter 1, what we covered real quickly, it took us two weeks to get to where we are, two messages. He said, what I just shared with you, what I just taught you, they're not cunningly devised fables. I didn't make it up. It's not something mankind put together. We declared to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we were eyewitnesses to the majesty of Christ, especially when we were back on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter's sharing what he has experienced. This is what I experienced. This is what I've seen with the Lord. Do you understand that this is the key to evangelism? Can you share with other people what you've seen in the Lord, what the Lord's done in your life? This is Peter's story. And none of us are going to have Peter's story. Peter's got a pretty amazing story. But that's his story. What's your story? You say, people often say, well, I don't know how to share Christ. Share what God has done in your life. Do you have certain milestones that you've reached out to? Is there certain, there, has there been a season of hardship or difficulty where the Lord's carried you through? Maybe it's been for years. Maybe it's been a long time. Is there a season where the Lord's been faithful to you and provided financially? Has the Lord, you know, sometimes we, we so forget what God does because we're quickly to move on to the next thing and we never go back to remember, hey, God was faithful here and here and here and here. But then we find ourselves in that one little spot going, God couldn't possibly be faithful here. And we start questioning everything we know, but we forgot all the faithfulness along the way. That's what Peter's saying. I want you to know that what I'm teaching you, I've witnessed with my own eyes. If we look back over your walk with the Lord, we find times where his majesty was evident in your life. Not like Peter's, you're not going to walk on water. But is there times where the Lord met you in that quiet space and said, I'm here with you. I know it's hard. I, I know it's difficult. Sin is abounding in the world. And you're experiencing the consequence of sin. You're experiencing the effects of sin. But I want you to know I'm here with you. And this is only temporary. And I'm going to give you a promise out of my word to help carry you through. Remember those times. That's what's going to sustain you. One more thought before we move on. When Peter was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, I mentioned it, the voice of God. Not only did it declare who he was, but it also, who, who Jesus was, it also rebuked Peter. It shushed him. Isn't it amazing how all these years later, a voice that once rebuked him became a sweet and powerful memory in his life? Think about it. Peter felt about this high, I'm sure of it. If God's got to shush you, tell you to be quiet, oh, and, and, he, and, he's, and, his, and, and Jesus is shining like the sun in front of you, and you are talking, and God's got to say, stop talking? You're, you're embarrassed by that. You, you don't know what to do. In fact, the scriptures tell us the disciples face down. They've got on their face, we're not even moving from this spot. They didn't even look up until everything was over. But yet Peter remembers this. He says, wait a minute. I remember this because, yes, it was embarrassing. Yes, it was difficult. Yes, it was hard. The Lord rebuked me publicly in front of my friends. But it's also one of the sweetest times in my life because he also revealed himself to me during that rebuke. He showed me who he was. I saw his majesty. I saw it before my very eyes. Yes, it was hard, but I, I, I gleaned something out of it. And now he's telling us, and he's not talking, see, if John was writing this, he'd be telling us about the rebuke part. But Peter doesn't write about that. He's saying, I'm telling you who God is, who, what he said to, to us. I'm telling you that was his power on display. And now what was once a rebuke has become a powerful memory, a proof of God in Peter's life. You ever sat through a church service? Or perhaps a Bible study? Or perhaps even opened the word on your own? And you feel like, man, the Lord's rebuking me. 
The Lord's telling me something important. He's, he, he's, he's, I'm getting a spiritual spanking. I feel like I'm getting beat with the Bible here. There's something, there's something going on here. You got two options. You can close it and run away. That's an option. Or you can endure it. You can repent. You can, you can come alongside of the Lord and say, all right, Lord, what are you doing in my life here? What is this? All right, it's hard. It's difficult. Will you meet me here? And he'll be faithful and he will. And I would be willing to bet, and I could testify to this in my own life, I won't give you a specific example this morning for the sake of time, but I can tell you that some of my greatest rebukes are also some of my greatest uh, times where I've seen the Lord working in my life. It's the times where I've grown the most, where you feel, it's like I can't believe this. I'm, I'm sorry, Lord, it brings you to a place of repentance, but it's also the time where he says, just like it, when, when Peter was shushed and they went face down, the scripture tells us that they laid there. They didn't get up until everything was over. And then Jesus walked over to him and he touched him. And he said, don't fear, don't fear. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes when we get rebuked by the Lord or by the scriptures or by a message or something, we go, we, I don't know what to do. Man, no better place than face down. Let the Lord touch you. Let him walk with you because that might be the thing, the very thing that he's working in your heart at the moment might be the very thing that someday will be a huge glory, a huge testimony to him. It's hard. We all go through it. We've all been there. It hurts sometimes. But while you're there, if you're face down before him, let him touch you. And he says, don't fear. I'm with you. I'm with you. I know you're there, but I'm not leaving you there. You're there so I can teach you. And then I want to raise you back up again. Look at Peter's life. He went on to deny him. He had to keep raising him up. Peter failed many times, but then the power of the Holy Spirit came upon him. He preached an amazing message in Acts chapter 2, and here he's writing to us some of these truths. And he's telling us, basically saying, I I lived what I'm teaching you. I'm not teaching you from book knowledge. I'm teaching you from experiential knowledge. Too many people, when they're rebuked, or when they feel like the Lord's doing, I'm not going back there again. I I want to find a church where they make me feel good. Peter said, I want to find a place before the Lord where I'm going to grow, where I'm going to change, where I can become more like him. And if it takes difficulty, if it takes hardship, I'll endure it because I trust the faithfulness of my Lord. Jesus touched Peter at his lowest point and he will do the same thing for you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. And it might become a sweet memory and part of your own declaration of who God is. Who's God? Let me tell you what God has done for me. When I was low, when I was here, when I was there, and I didn't understand, and I asked questions, and I doubted, God said this. And you know what? It came to pass. Then you move on to the next thing in life. It might be years or days or months later. And what, what did God do next? And you have this stepping stones where God has proven himself faithful over and over and over again. And these difficult seasons can often turn into times of where we will then give glory to God once we're through them. But I got to assure you, life is hard. And it can be very, very difficult while you're walking through it. But I will also promise you, because the word promises, the Lord will never leave you, never forsake you. He will walk through it right there with you. The only way he's not going to be right by your side is if you don't want him there. And he'll give you the freedom to do it on your own. But understand, even that is only with the idea of, I want you to come back. I want you to come back. I want you to depend upon me. So if Peter's eyewitness isn't convincing enough. All right, Peter, you told us, but I'm not convinced. I want you to see what he says there in verse 19. He says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed. Now we read those 
a few words, we go, what does that really mean? Don't just skip over it. Peter's saying this. He's saying, I'm telling you about the power of the Lord. I'm telling you about what I experienced. But I need to tell you something else. The prophetic word of God, all of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, they're confirmed. They're confirmed in Jesus Christ. I've witnessed them confirmed. All the things that you read in the Old Testament prophets, Peter's saying, I've seen them fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's true. Peter's experience at the transfiguration was amazing. It was a wonderful place, a movement in his life where his life probably changed forever. He's even writing about it here. But understand something. The testimony of God's word, the testimony of God's word about Jesus was even more sure, more reliable than Peter's personal experience. Yes, Peter experienced it, but he's telling you the testimony, the prophetic word of God. What God said 400, 500, 600, 700 years before the Messiah came, that's more reliable than what I experienced. You put them two together and you have an accurate account. Do you realize that there are numerous prophecies about a Messiah in the Old Testament? 332 is what scholars would suggest that they know of. Let me just give you a few of them. I don't have time to cover all 332. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. We know that's true. The Bible tells us. History te- <laughs> secular history tells us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We know that he would be born of a virgin. We knew that Herod would be killing infants. We knew that he would be taken to Egypt to flee Herod. We knew that there would be a messenger that came before his ministry. That was John the Baptist. We knew that the Messiah would preach good news, which Jesus did. We knew the Messiah would perform miracles, which Jesus did. We knew the Messiah would cleanse the temple. If you don't think that Jesus did that, come to church Thursday night because that's where we're at in Matthew. We know the Messiah would minister in the region of Galilee, which is exactly where Jesus was, where he'd ministered. We knew the Messiah would enter Jerusalem as a king on a donkey. Zechariah told us that in chapter 9. Listen to last Thursday's message and you'll learn more about that prophecy. Do you realize that even Daniel prophesied to the exact day that the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem? Daniel lived over 500 years before Christ was born. And in his prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, he told us what day it was going to happen. If you want more information, listen to last Thursday night. We covered that last Thursday. We talked about that in detail. The timing was predicted by Daniel. The Messiah would be rejected by the Jews, and he was. The Messiah would die a humiliating death, and he did. And the last one I'm going to talk about is the Messiah would rise from the dead. And we know that he did that as well. Fulfilled prophecy confirms God's word. Even if a man could cunningly devise a fable, the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Messiah are not in man's control. None of you decided where and when you would be born, did you? You don't have any say in that. You're coming out whenever it's time. There's no say in it. You can't decide that. These prophecies, many of them are out of human control. You You can't decide what a king from another country does. Jesus, would, unless he's God, would have no control over what Herod does. He's a king. According to Peter... The prophetic word concerning the Messiah, it's confirmed. It's finished. It's done. That word confirmed, it means reliable and dependable. And you might say, well, Rob, that's Peter's opinion. That's what Peter thinks. Well, Peter says, I lived it. I saw it. I experienced it. So now I look and you go, well, you just, what, what? 
And I can look back at you and go, not only does Peter have a confirmed prophetic word of the Lord, not only do we, we have history to prove it. We can look back over history and see, yes, these things happened. Jesus is, no, he, he wasn't a real person I hear sometimes. That is the dumbest thing anybody could ever say. It, don't, it, don't, nobody even, go, secular history proves that he existed. Absolutely, it's not even a question. I don't know if I believe it, Rob. Listen, I want to share something with you in my personal life. In my very personal life, many, many years ago, I began, I looked at the Bible and I had a question. Is it really God's word? How can we be sure? Is it really true? How do I know this just isn't a bunch of things that people put together? How do I know it's not a cunningly devised fable? How do I know the scriptures are just, how can I be sure? And you know what convinced me that this is God's word? Prophetic prophecy fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Prophetic prophecy convinced me that this is God's word. At that point, once I had enough, I said, that's it, I'm done, I am confirmed. This is it, I'm convinced. This is God's word, I will now live by it, I will spend the rest of my life teaching it and doing whatever the Lord calls me to do around it. There was no more question. I don't, I don't question anymore, is this God's word? I put that to bed a long time ago. But prophetic prophecy, the fulfillment of prophecy in Jesus Christ was enough for me to say, that's true. There's been all kinds of studies out there, all kinds of statistics, and I will just simply tell you, I don't have time to cover them. Statistically, the number of fulfilling just eight of these prophecies is huge. Mathematician, his name was Peter Stoner, is his name, and he wasn't smoking weed. He did the mathematics. He took eight prophecies, and he said, I'm going to figure out the statistical probability of them coming true and he came and it was one in ten i believe i'm doing this off memory i think it was one in ten to the 17th power eight prophecies well that's just a 10 with a bunch of zeros after that really doesn't mean anything to us so he gave us a way of understanding that and this is what he said he said if you were to take silver dollars and you were to cover the entire state of texas and you were to make it three feet deep three feet Three feet of silver dollars across the entire state of Texas. If you were to paint one of them red, throw it in the middle, mix it up, and you reached it and grabbed that red one, that's the same odds as just eight of the messianic prophecies coming true. You have a better chance at winning a lottery in every state than that. One in 10 to the 17th power. And he went on from there to make it even larger as he added more prophecies there. What he's saying, what Peter's saying is the prophetic word, the fulfillment of God's prophecy is important. And since it's reliable, Peter tells us what to do with it there in verse 19. He said, so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed, which he's talking to us, by the way, which you will do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts the greek word for heed it means to pay close attention to something you would do well to pay close attention to biblical prophecy some people say well i really don't like prophecy peter says you better pay attention to it it's what's going to build your faith it's going to be that light that shines in the dark place it will illuminate your life it will build your faith it will be that thing that substantiates what you believe In the last two chapters, Peter wants us to know two very important things about prophecy. I'm sorry, the last two verses. He says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, 
but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Did you catch it? He said there is no private interpretation. And the word for interpretation, it, it, we, we take it to mean like, well, I have my interpretation, you have yours, I have your understanding, you have your understanding, I have mine. That's not what he's referring to here. The word for interpretation speaks of its origin. Its origin. No prophecy of scripture is of a private origin. It, didn't, it, it, it only came through the Lord. Well, how do we get them? It, it didn't come by the will of man. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. See, even in Peter's day, they had people who wanted to twist what was happening. They wanted to take prophecy and they wanted to make it something where they could gain something from it. They wanted to exclude Jesus. They wanted to come up with new prophecies. I'm going to come up with something new. I'm going to come up with something different. Peter will tell us that all that's being done by false teachers. He says there is no private interpretation to the prophecy of scriptures. There's, no, there's nothing private in there. It, it's, it's, going, it, it's clear. It's, in other words, private also means it's, it's going to be easy to understand. It's not, it's, not, it's not going to be a secret. He wants us to find those things. Now, if you've been anything like me, you've run into people from time to time who call themselves a prophet. And they'll introduce themselves. Hi, I'm prophet so-and-so. And I always... Well, I won't tell you what I always want to do. But I always consider, like, why, do you, why, why are you telling me that, you know? And, and sometimes people will, will come up to me and they'll say, hey, I have, a, I have a word for the Lord from you, okay? And, and that could be a valid thing. I'm not, dis, I'm not discrediting that. The Lord could speak to, to me through somebody else, and, and he has done that many times. But sometimes they'll come up to me and they'll this big show, hi, I'm prophet so-and-so, and, and I've got a word for the Lord from you. And I don't ever tell them to... I don't ever shush them. Go ahead, I want to hear. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's from the Lord. I want, I want to know. And they'll begin to say something about this and that, and they'll start talking about uh, what I should do. It usually, it usually comes around to something. I need to do something, you know, and I always find it interesting. If I need to do something, you know, I had my quiet time this morning. I had my devote. Why didn't the Lord tell me? If I'm communicating with the Lord, why is he going to tell you what I need to do? But here's what I found, how prophecy works today. Sometimes the Lord will be working on my heart. He'll be, he'll be trying to get me to do something. And, and many times I'm like, I don't know if I want to do that or not, Lord. I, you know, and I kind of go back and forth. Or I'll start going, Lord, is this really you? How do I know this is you? Can you, can you confirm this thing that you're, you're doing in my heart right now? Can you confirm that? And out of the blue, someone will walk up and say, hey, have you ever thought of? And they'll say exactly what I've been praying about. That's a word of, that doesn't mean that they're a prophet. It means they just spoke a word of prophecy into my life that said, hey, the Lord wants you to know something. This is what it is. Wow, that's amazing. Unbelievable. So just like in Peter's day, just like today, there's many people who try to take advantage of this prophecy idea. When it comes to the scriptures, there's nothing new. We don't need any more prophecies. We know all we need to know about Jesus, who, about the Lord. All that you need to know about God is included in the scriptures. Everything. You have to go find it. We have to teach it to you. You have to learn it and live it, but it's all here. Now, that doesn't mean, when he says there's no private interpretation, it doesn't mean that the Lord won't speak to you through the scripture where he's going to kind of minister to you in a direct way. And I'm going to give you a quick example. When I was praying about coming to church or coming to Cumberland, Maryland to plant a church, uh, I began praying and, and I had lots of little prophetic words that people had spoken. I can remember driving down in my car and I was praying one day. I'm like, Lord, you know, should I, where, where, where should I go? What should I do? And I passed a street sign that said Cumberland Way. I'm like, oh, that's, that's cool, but I'm not moving to Cumberland on a street sign. You know, I mean, that's nice. And it's, it's, it's one confirmation of many, but I began to really seek the Lord saying, all right, Lord, 
I need you to give me something out of your word. I need you to speak to me through your word so that when I get to Cumberland, that I can hold on to something that I can go back to and say, this is from the Lord. And he took me to the end of the book of Colossians. There's a verse there. Paul's saying goodbye to everybody like he often does in his letters. And he's saying goodbye to the church in Colossae there. And he says this. He says, tell Archippus to take heed to the ministry which he has received and fulfill it. To me, when I read that verse, it was like the Lord was in the room. He said, tell, he's like, Rob, take heed which means pay close attention to, right? To the ministry which you have received and fulfill it. That's not a, I'm not reinterpreting scripture on that, but the Lord spoke to me specifically. It was what I was asking for, confirmation in his word before I take this huge step of faith because when you quit your job and you move a thousand miles away from home where you don't know anybody, it's a big step. I said, I needed something, Lord. And he gave it to me, met me right there. But no one's gonna come in and reinterpret scripture. We don't need it. Peter's telling us at the end of this chapter, he says, what I'm telling you, I've experienced, I've lived it out. It's not my ideas, it's not my hopes, it's, what I, it's my life. I've experienced what was prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before the Messiah. I saw it, it's real, it's true. And you can count on it. Peter wants us to know his source for what he's writing is Jesus Christ. And that's substantiated, he said, by the prophecies of the Old Testament. In other words, what I, just, what, I read, what I told you in the first 15 verses of the chapter comes from my relationship with him, but it fulfills the prophecy of the Old Testament. In other words, you can believe it and you can know that it's true.